Welcome to the History of English podcast, a podcast about the history of the English language. This is episode 79, Anarchy. In this episode, we're going to look at anarchy in England. We'll see how England descended into chaos and warfare, and we'll look at the horrible consequences for the people of England. These were also the final years recorded by the Peterborough Chronicle, and the scribe who recorded those entries famously concluded that Christ and his saints were asleep. He summarized this history with some of the most vivid imagery in the entire Anglo-Saxon Chronicle. The passages are moving, and they describe horrible acts. But more importantly for our purposes, those passages illustrate some major changes in the English language. So while English politics were descending into chaos and anarchy, the English language was experiencing a revolution of its own. But before we begin, let me remind you that the website for the podcast is historyofenglishpodcast.com, and you can always reach me directly by email at kevin at historyofenglishpodcast.com, and I'm on Twitter at EnglishHistPod. Also, I continue to collect voice samples for future episodes. I mainly intend to use them when we get to the modern English period, so that'll be a while, but you can go ahead and submit a sample of your accent or dialect at the voice samples page of the website. And I haven't really mentioned it before, but you can also leave other feedback there, questions or comments, and I may use those as well. And also remember that you can support the podcast by becoming a member at patreon.com. I post a bonus episode there with each new episode of the podcast. And if you donate at least $5 a month, you can access all of the bonus content there. As always, you can just go to historyofenglishpodcast.com and link to Patreon from there. So with that, let's turn to this episode, and what were truly some of the darkest days in the history of England. Last time, we looked at the outbreak of civil war. Stephen claimed the English throne, but his cousin Matilda soon arrived to assert her own claims. She found an important ally in her half-brother, Robert of Gloucester. So that left England with two rival courts, and that meant that the nobles had to take sides. Throughout England, the nobles built castles at a rapid rate, and they used those castles and their knights to dominate the land around them. This was the beginning of that extended period of conflict known as the Anarchy. Now, I should note here that the term anarchy is a relatively modern label for this period. It was first used by historians in the 1800s, and it was an attempt to capture the sense of lawlessness that took place during the war. This was a period in which there was a general breakdown of law and order, and powerful lords were able to act on their worst instincts. But again, the word anarchy is a relatively recent term used by some modern historians. In fact, the word anarchy didn't enter the English language until the 1500s. It came in from French, and like most French words, it can be traced back to Latin. But it has its ultimate origins in Greek. The Greek word archos meant ruler, and that root ultimately produced the suffix archi to describe a type of rule. So monarchy is a system of government with one primary ruler. Oligarchy is ruled by a small group of people. Patriarchy is ruled by men, and matriarchy is ruled by women. But to express the idea that there was no ruler at all, 
the Greeks combined the word on, meaning without, with that word archos, meaning ruler. The result was anarchos, literally without a ruler. And that word eventually became anarchy. So, anarchy reflects a condition where there's no ruler who can impose law and order, where it's basically every man for himself. And that was why that term came to be used by many historians for this period of conflict in the 12th century. By the way, the Greek root that gave us anarchy also produced a lot of other words in English, and I explore the etymology of those words in the new bonus episode at Patreon. So, anarchy is literally the absence of a ruler or leader. And that process began when the leadership of England was split between Stephen and Matilda. The result was the creation of two rival courts, with Stephen's base in the east and Matilda's base in the west. The various barons were encouraged to choose sides, but some chose to play one side against the other. Late in the year 1140, Stephen got into a conflict with the Earl of Chester, who was named Randolph. Randolph wanted some specific lands, but Stephen gave the lands to someone else. And Randolph responded by seizing the castle at Lincoln, and that forced Stephen's hand. Stephen headed to Lincoln to besiege the castle and force Randolph out. At Peterborough, the scribe who maintained the local chronicle recorded these events in the entry for the year 1140. He begins the entry by noting that the country experienced a solar eclipse early in the year. Then he notes that war broke out between Stephen and Randolph. He writes, After this waxed a very great war betwixt the king and Randolph, Earl of Chester. Thereafter waxed sutha mutuera betwixt the king and Randolph, Earl of Chester. Note that the scribe says that the conflict between the two men waxed, meaning to increase. This is the same meaning we have when we use the phrase wax and wane to mean increase and decrease. Wax and wane are Old English terms, and increase and decrease are French terms. By the way, the noun form of wax, as in beeswax or candle wax, is also an Old English word but it comes from a different root and is completely unrelated to the verb wax. So the scribe tells us that the conflict between Stephen and Randolph waxed, or grew more intense. He writes, The earl held Lincoln against the king, and took away from him all that he ought to have. The earl held Lincoln against the king, and benam him all that he ought to have. Benam meant to take away from. Again, it was an Old English word. Binam and the related word niman were both eventually replaced with the Norse word take. And in fact, by this point, the word take was already being used alongside those Old English words in the Peterborough Chronicle. So the earl binam, or took away, the castle which rightly belonged to Stephen. So Stephen tried to take it back. At that point, the Earl appealed to Matilda and her brother, Robert of Gloucester. The Peterborough scribe writes that the Earl stole out and went after Robert, Earl of Gloucester, and brought him thither with a large ferd or militia. The Earl stole out and fared after Robert, Earl of Gloucester, and brought him thither with mutual ferd. When Robert's forces arrived, 
they squared off against Stephen's army. A great battle then ensued, a battle known to history as the Battle of Lincoln. Robert's men eventually got the upper hand, and Stephen's men fled the battlefield and abandoned him. Stephen was soon captured and taken into custody by Robert's forces. But he wasn't executed. Instead, Matilda chose to put him in prison. With the rival king in prison, it looked like Matilda was finally in a position to claim the throne for herself. So she headed to London to make it official. The plan was to go to London and have a formal coronation at Westminster. The Peterborough scribe recorded these events. He wrote, Thereafter came King Henry's daughter, who had been empress in Germany, and now was Countess of Anjou. Thereafter come the King's daughter, Henrys. They have to been empress in Alemanni, and knew was Countess in Anjou. Now, a couple of things about this passage. First of all, he calls Matilda the Empress in Alemanni, which meant the Empress in Germany. Remember that Matilda had previously been married to the Holy Roman Emperor, so she was commonly known as the Empress. And this is actually the first known use of the word Empress in the English language. Of course, Empress is derived from the word Empire, and it's also related to words like Emperor and Imperial. But all three of those words, Empire, Emperor, and Imperial, came in about a century later. So Empress came in first here in the mid-1100s. Now, I should note that this is based on the surviving English documents. It's certainly possible that words like Empire and Emperor were being used much earlier, but they aren't actually attested until later on in the Middle English period. I should also note that the scribe refers to Germany as Alemanni, the same root that's still used in many Romance languages. The word Germany comes in later from the word Germania. So Matilda is referred to here as the Empress of Alemanni and the Countess of Anjou. And now she came to London with the intention of adding Queen of England to that list of titles. But that didn't happen. Other chronicles, written in Latin, tell us that Matilda entered London like a conqueror. She wore the insignia of the Empress. We're also told that she made the local militia leaders in London show their allegiance to her by kissing the stirrup of her horse. So she alienated some of the city leaders as soon as she arrived. Then she offended even more people by levying a tax on the city. And this actually violated her father's policy, who had largely exempted London from royal taxes. So she didn't exactly get a warm welcome in London. We also have to keep in mind that London had supported Stephen up to this point, so Matilda was viewed with some skepticism even before she had made those decisions. And we always have to keep in mind that the people of that era weren't accustomed to a female monarch. So if a king levied taxes and made people kiss his stirrups, it might have been seen as a sign of power and strength. But when Matilda did that, it was viewed as arrogance, especially among people who weren't really sympathetic to her to begin with. While Matilda awaited her coronation, the people of London started to rise up against her. And at the same time, King Stephen's wife was now on the scene. Her name was also Matilda, and she had started to rally the men who still supported her husband. She put together a new army, and she advanced toward London. So it was now Matilda against Matilda. 
At this point, the uprising in London reached such a fever pitch that Empress Matilda could no longer stay there. On June 24, 1141, she fled the city. So she left before her coronation, and she never officially became the queen. Once again, the Peterborough scribe captured these events in a brief passage. Writing of Matilda, he wrote, She came to London, but the London folk attempted to take her, and she fled, and lost many of her followers. Uncome to Londona, and the Londonische folk here would taken, and she flech, and forerless daramichel. Now this is a very important passage for a couple of reasons. First of all, note that the scribe says that the people of London here would taken, her would take, or tried to take her. So here, the scribe is using the Norse word take, whereas before he used that Old English word binam, which meant the same thing. So we see this word take being used as a synonym and being used interchangeably with the native English word. And over time, take pushed out the other English words binam and niman. But there's another word in this passage that's very important to the history of English. In the last part of the passage, the scribe wrote that she flech, literally, she fled, meaning she fled the city of London. So what's so important about that passage? Well, this is the first known use of the word she in the English language. Yes, the incredibly common pronoun she makes its first appearance in this passage written by the Peterborough scribe. So, if you've ever wondered about the first use of the word she and who exactly she referred to, now you know. The first known use of the word was in reference to Matilda, Empress of Germany, Countess of Anjou, and almost Queen of England. From these humble beginnings in the mid-1100s, the word she was destined to have a great history. In an early episode of the podcast, I presented a list of the 50 most common words in the English language, and the word she was on that list. It actually came in as the 46th most common word in the language. And of course, it's a common word because it's a basic pronoun. So all of this raises some interesting questions. Where did the word she come from? And why did it all of a sudden appear at this point? And how did it become one of our standard pronouns? Well, the answers to those questions are not entirely clear. Again, this is where the general lack of English documents from this period is really frustrating. With more documents, it would be easier to trace the history. But without those documents, we don't really have specific answers. Now, I've actually discussed the word she before. I mentioned it briefly in episode 54, the episode I did about pronouns. So let me briefly revisit that history. The first question is, why did English speakers suddenly decide to adopt a new pronoun at this point? Now, most scholars agree that the word she was adopted because the old pronoun forms were too similar, and that created a lot of confusion. And during a time when the language was undergoing a lot of changes, and a time when formal education in English had disappeared, English speakers were looking for ways to simplify the language. So why were the old pronouns confusing? Well, you might remember that all of the Old English pronoun forms began with the same H sound. So whereas today we have he, she, it, him, her, 
they and them. In Old English, the equivalent forms were he, hail, heat, hina, hia, hia, and hia. And yes, that's correct. Three of those forms were identical. Her, they, and them were all pronounced the same way. Hia. So most scholars think that English speakers were looking for ways to clear up that confusion. One way they did that was to borrow the Norse pronouns for the plural versions. In the north of England, people were using the Norse words they, them, and their beside the English equivalents. And of course, all of those Norse plural forms began with a TH sound. And over the course of several centuries, those Norse TH forms started to spread south. They were still considered more of a northern form even during the time of Geoffrey Chaucer. Chaucer used them in the Canterbury Tales, but he only used them in the speech of characters who were from the north of England. So words like they and them and their were considered northern variations of the traditional Old English plural pronouns. But that initial TH sound made those plural forms distinct, and they were gradually adopted in the South as well. And by the time we get to Shakespeare, those TH forms had become the standard forms throughout England. Well, at the same time that words like they and them and their were replacing the native forms, the word she was also replacing the native form, which was heo. Heo was the standard feminine pronoun when used as the subject of the sentence. And note the similarity between that female form and the male form he, which would have been pronounced hey in Old English. So the male form was hey and the female form was heo. So most scholars think that speakers were looking for ways to distinguish these male and female forms. So it was part of the same process that brought in the Norse TH forms to distinguish the singular pronouns from the plural pronouns. If that helps to explain why the word she pushed out the word heyo over time, it doesn't really explain where the word came from. One theory is that it was also borrowed from the Vikings, like those TH forms. But Old Norse didn't have the word she or a form of the word she. So, unless it was a slang word or part of some Norse dialect in England that wasn't recorded elsewhere, it's hard to trace it back to the Vikings. The other popular theory is that she is related to the loss of grammatical gender. And this theory has actually become the more popular theory, because this was the period when grammatical gender largely disappeared. So, what's the connection between she and the loss of grammatical gender? Well, it has to do with all of those various forms of the word the before the was adopted. A few episodes back, I noted that Old English didn't have the word the as an article. It had lots of different forms, depending on the gender of the noun and how the noun was being used in the sentence. So instead of the, Old English had say, seo, that, da, das, der, and so on. And I noted in that episode that the form used with the feminine nouns was seo. So instead of the queen, it was seo queen. But we know that this final Peterborough scribe ditched all of those various older forms, and he just used the word the. So seo fell out of use. Or did it? Some scholars think seo became she. 
Remember, this earlier pronoun form was only used for feminine nouns. So some scholars think that it may have been preserved as a generic feminine pronoun in the form of she. It's possible that the scribe was simply indicating this new use for the word. And this new use was increasingly popular because it helped to distinguish the male and female pronoun forms. So from hey and heyo to hey and sha, and then to modern English, he and she. Anyway, this is the most popular theory today, but there's still some uncertainty. While the ultimate origin of the word she may be uncertain, the oldest known use of the word is not. We now know that it was used in reference to Matilda, and it was used in reference to the fact that she was forced to flee from London. So at this point in our story, we have Matilda on the run, and we have King Stephen in prison. So neither leader was doing very well. We also have Stephen's wife, also named Matilda, who was leading his forces in his absence. So at this point, for all practical purposes, the Civil War was being fought between two women, both named Matilda. And Stephen's wife now had the upper hand. It's now that events turned to the south, to Winchester, the old capital of Wessex. I've noted previously that King Stephen's brother was the Bishop of Winchester, and he was a very important cleric. But he had turned against Stephen after Stephen had arrested several other prominent bishops. So, at this point, Stephen's brother swore his loyalty to Matilda, and he invited Matilda and Robert of Gloucester to Winchester. But word of this invitation quickly reached the other Matilda, King Stephen's wife, and she decided to lead the king's army down to Winchester to confront Robert and his men. The Peterborough scribe wrote, When they were therein, then came the king's queen with all her strength and beset them, so that there was much hunger inside. Tahidera inawerin, to come the king's queen mit all her strength, and beset him, that there was in a mutual hunger. So we have King Stephen's wife leading his forces down to Winchester, and besieging Robert of Gloucester. Ultimately, Robert's forces gave up and fled, and this time Robert was taken prisoner. So Matilda's brother Robert is now in prison, and King Stephen is still in prison. So the leading men on both sides were incarcerated, and that meant that Matilda fought Matilda on their own terms. And Stephen's wife, Matilda, proved to be the superior leader. Empress Matilda suffered a series of defeats, and without Robert by her side, she struggled to hold her own. With both leading men imprisoned, it was eventually decided that a prisoner exchange was in order. Each Matilda would release their prisoner to the other. So Empress Matilda would release Stephen, and in exchange she would get back her brother Robert. The Peterborough scribe writes the following. Then went the wise men between the king's friends and the earl's friends, and settled so that they should let the king out of prison for the earl, and the earl for the king. And so they did. The fairer than the wise men betwixt the king's friend and the earl's friend, and sacrilege swath that me should letten out the king of prison for the earl, and the earl for the king, and swadiden. This exchange reinvigorated Stephen's forces. When Stephen was in prison, some of his supporters had started to negotiate with Matilda, 
but now, with his release, they went back to war. By the fall of 1142, Matilda had retreated to Oxford, and she was taking refuge in a castle there. Stephen's forces surrounded her and besieged the castle. By December, the food had run out. Matilda and her men were starving, and the ground was frozen and covered with snow. And Matilda started to realize that she had no choice but to surrender. It looked like the end of the road for the Empress, and it seemed that the Civil War was about to reach its final conclusion, with Stephen and his descendants controlling the future of England. But Matilda made a decision that ultimately changed the history of the English monarchy. She decided to escape. She climbed out of a window in the castle, and she slid down a rope. She was dressed in a long white robe so that she couldn't be seen against the snow that covered the ground. She then slid past the soldiers who didn't realize who she was. It was so cold that the Thames was frozen over, so she was able to walk across the frozen river, and she disappeared into the night. Hollywood couldn't have written it any better. Here's how the Peterborough scribe captured these events. When the king was out, he heard of this, and took his fur, and beset her in the tower. But the king was ulta the herdeth at Sechen, and took his ferd, and beset her in the tour. And they let her down in the night from the tower by ropes. And they let her do of nicht, of the tour midrapis. And she stole out and fled, and went on foot to Wallingford. On Stalut, and Schiflech, and yed on foot to Wallingford. One quick note about that passage. We really get a sense here of how much those inflectional endings were disappearing. Most of the nouns lack any inflectional endings. Ferd is ferd. Tower is tur. So there are no endings where traditionally there were endings. For the word ropes, the scribe uses rapis with the es ending that became standard over time. It should have been rapas with an as ending. So we have evidence of disappearing endings for singular nouns and the use of a standard ES ending for plural nouns. All of this is getting us closer to the grammar we use today. So at this point, Matilda is once again on the run. Having fled from London earlier, now she fled from Oxford. And with Matilda's escape, the war was destined to continue. Every time a resolution appeared to be in sight, it seemed to slip through everyone's fingers. So the whole conflict just dragged on and on. In fact, after the prisoner exchange and Matilda's escape from Oxford, civil order largely collapsed around the country. The next five years or so are considered the worst period of the anarchy. The war itself essentially became a stalemate, with neither side making much progress against the other. Pitched battles were actually very rare. It mostly consisted of skirmishes and castle sieges. The real story at this point was the general breakdown of law and order. Stephen still maintained a strong base in the southeast, and Robert and Matilda maintained a base in the southwest. But in much of the rest of the country, everyone was left to fend for themselves. As I noted last time, the local barons filled that vacuum. They built castles, and they ruled over their local subjects as petty kings. And the term petty king is being very generous. In reality, they were more like warlords and gangsters. They fought with each other, but more importantly, they oppressed the people who were under their control. 
With no one to keep them in check, they ignored the rule of law and they exploited the countryside. This is where the story takes a really dark turn, with tremendous violence and suffering and death. The primary victims of that violence were the peasants. The local barons demanded that the peasants pay them fees, either as ransoms or protection money. So it was extortion. When the peasants couldn't pay, the barons tortured or killed them. They were basically gangsters, but it was worse than that. A local noble would sometimes kidnap people and hold them for ransom. The victims were usually held in jail or a dungeon, and they were beaten and chained and tortured. They were left to freeze in the cold, and sometimes they were suspended by the feet or hands with chain mail to weigh them down. They were even placed over smoky fires so they could barely breathe. Eventually, so many peasants were extorted and imprisoned that the old manor system started to fall apart. Crops were abandoned or actually destroyed. Manors and farms were neglected, and others were intentionally ravaged and destroyed. And starvation soon set in. And the local barons didn't limit their exploitation to the peasants. They even robbed and plundered the churches. There was no central power to keep them in check, so they just did as they pleased. Some even minted their own local coins. But those coins were of little use, except for paying ransoms. They didn't tend to buy very much because trade and commerce was also disrupted. People barely had enough to eat, much less to sell at a market. One of the most moving accounts of this period comes from the Peterborough scribe. He not only describes the violence and anarchy of the period, he does it in English, in the language of the peasants who are actually being exploited. So the language is even more powerful. The scribe places his description of these events in the entry for the year 1137, but it's really a description of the entire period, as we know he was writing at the end of this period, and he was looking back on what had happened. I want to conclude this episode by going through this particular passage, because it's one of the most moving passages in the entire Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, and it also illustrates how the language was changing during this period. So here's what the scribe wrote. Then they took from those who worked and were thought to have any goods, both by night and day, men and women, and threw them into prison for their gold and silver, and inflicted on them indescribable tortures for never were any martyrs tortured as much as they were. So a few quick comments. The scribe says that the warlords took any good, or any goods, they could find. This sense of the word goods goes back to Old English. Good meant anything good, and it came to mean valuable assets or property. And we also see Norse and French words mixed into this passage. The scribe refers to karlmen and women. Karlmen is a Norse term for men. And he says that the warlords threw the peasants in prison using the French word prison. He also says that the victims were tortured, but he doesn't use the word torture, which was a French word. Instead, he uses the Old English word pina, or pine. 
We still use that word today when we refer to someone pining away for a lost love. But the original meaning of the word was to suffer or torture. I've noted before that Old English didn't have very many words that began with a P sound. So many scholars think this word pine was an early Germanic borrowing from the Romans. It's thought that pine comes from the same Latin root that gave us penal and penalty and punish. So when the scribe says that the warlords pined or peened the victims, he's literally saying that they punished the victims, but the victims had committed no crimes. This passage also illustrates how speakers of early English weren't bothered by double negatives or even triple negatives. The scribe wrote that for ne were never non martyrs swapined, literally, for not were never no martyrs so punished or tortured. So he uses a triple negative. But again, in early English, that was often done for emphasis. It wasn't considered bad English until many centuries later when Latin scholars gave their input. So there's a lot going on in that passage. Then the scribe continues, and he describes the nature of the torture or pining. He writes, Some they hanged up by the feet, and smoked them with foul smoke. And some were hanged by the thumbs, or by the head, and coats of mail were hung from their feet. May hanged up be the fet, and smoked ham, mid full smoke. May hanged be the thumus, other be the heavid and hangem Brunius on her fet. By the way, Brunius is a Norse version of an old Germanic word for chainmail. So again, these passages show a lot of Norse influences. The scribe then continues to illustrate the torture. He writes, The men tied knotted strings about their heads and twisted them till it went into their brains. May dir knotted string as a bulton herhavid and Ruthen to that it gada to the herness. By the way, herness is another Old Norse word. It meant brains. So again, we see a lot of Norse influences here. The scribe then says that the warlords put men into dungeons, where adders and snakes and toads killed them. He did in him in Kortina, Darnadras, Ansnakas, and Padas Weraina, and Drop in him swa. Here the scribe uses the word quartina instead of prison. It's a French word, and it's basically an early version of the word quarters, as in close quarters or headquarters. What's so interesting about the use of this word is that it's spelled Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-N-E. Here the scribe uses the Q-U letter combination for the qua sound. And that was a brand new spelling in English. The Anglo-Saxons had used the letter combination C and win, which was the runic letter used for the W sound. So queen, or quain, was originally spelled C-win-e-n. But now the new French spelling was used. So we see some of the first uses of the Q-U letter combination in the English language. And that also means that we see some of the first uses of the letter Q, which wasn't used by the Anglo-Saxons. The Roman letter Q had survived in the Romance languages, but it tended to be restricted to this Q-U letter combination, and that's how it passed into English. We see it here in this variation of the word quarter, and we'll soon see it in new spellings for words like queen and quick and quake and qualm, 
which were all Old English words that were about to get new spellings in Middle English. Also, note that the scribe says the warlords threw the men in prison or quarters with adders, snakes, and potus, or toads. Pod, or pad, was an old word for a toad. This is actually the first use of the word in English. Once again, it came in from Old Norse. Over the next century or so, the word pad became paddock, and that word is still used for toad in some English dialects. So if a warlord was trying to torture a peasant, it makes sense that he would throw him in a pit with adders and snakes. But why toads? Well, during this period, it was still a common belief that toads were poisonous. So people were generally afraid of them. In fact, there's an old expression, a pad in the straw, and it refers to something that's gone wrong or a hidden danger. It literally means a poisonous toad hiding in the straw. So it goes back to this belief that toads were poisonous. Now, as we return to the Chronicle, we find out that the warlords had lots of tortures for their victims. The scribe tells us that they sometimes used a crucitor. Now, you may be wondering what a crucitor is. Well, this is the only known use of the word in the English language. But the scribe was kind enough to tell us exactly what it was. He wrote, That is, in a chest that was short and narrow and undeep or shallow. That is in a chest that was short and narrow and undeep. And they put sharp stones therein, and so crushed the man therein, that broke all his limbs. And did a sharp stones therein, and rang the man therein, that him breaken all the limbs. It's interesting that the scribe felt the need to explain what this device was and how it worked. So this must have been a new form of torture. And the word is certainly unusual. As I noted, crucitor doesn't appear in any other English documents. And it's not clearly attested in any other language either. It appears to be a variation of the Latin word cruciator, which meant a torturer or tormentor. It comes from the same root that gave us the word excruciating. The scribe then lists other torture devices, like iron shackles that were placed around a man's neck. The man was then left to hang by the shackles, called loaf and grin, using the old English terms. The tortured victim didn't actually choke to death, he just hung there. He couldn't sit or lie down or sleep. The scribe then writes the following passage. I cannot and I may not tell all the wonders and all the pines or tortures which they inflicted on the wretched men of this land. Ine kan ne ine mai telin all the wonder ne all the penis that he did in regimen on this land. Now there's something very important about this sentence, and that's the word e, or as we know it today, I. This is the first known use of the pronoun I in the English language. According to my list of the most commonly used words in the English language, the word I is the number one word on that list. So that's why I wanted to point out this sentence. Now, just to be clear, we pronounce the word as I today thanks to the great vowel shift at the end of the Middle English period. That's when the pronunciation of many of the vowels started to change. Prior to that change, 
the letter I was pronounced as E, as in the words king and bring. So this pronoun was probably pronounced as E. Now, this wasn't a brand new pronoun. It was just a new variation of the existing pronoun. Up to this point, the first person pronoun was each, spelled I-C. But now, the ch part was starting to be dropped, and it just became E, rendered with the single letter I. We know from later text that this was a development within Northern English, and it took a long time for it to be fully accepted in the South. In fact, each survived until the 1700s in some Southern texts. It was also just a lowercase i at this point, but it tended to get lost in written text. It sort of blended in with the words that preceded it or followed it. And so scribes looked for a way to make it stand out as a distinct word, not just a letter. And a few centuries later, it became standard practice to use an uppercase i instead of a lowercase i to make it easier to read. So here in these passages, the Peterborough scribe has given us the first use of the word she and the first use of I as a shortened form of each. And once again, we see the loss of inflectional endings. The final part of that sentence I just read is on this land. In traditional Old English, it would have been rendered as on thesum landa, but now it's just on this land. So the inflections are gone, and it reads just like modern English. So we see lots of changes towards modern English in these passages. The scribe then tells us that the local lords levied guilds or taxes on the towns from time to time. He writes, They laid guilds on the towns once in a while, and called it tensory. He laid in guildis on the tunis avra umwila, and clepid in it tensory. Tensory comes from the old French word tense, which meant to protect. It was used in Latin documents of this period, and it was used here in the Peterborough Chronicle as well. From the other documents, we know that the word meant protection money. So this was basically extortion. The townspeople had to pay the lord for protection, not just from other lords, but also from the lord who was extorting the money. If the townspeople ran out of money, the Lord would destroy the town. The scribe writes, When the wretched men had no more to give, then they plundered and burned all the towns. That the wretched men had none more to give, and he brained in all the tunis. Over time, many of the towns were burned and destroyed in this manner. The scribe says that many of the towns were left without people, and the adjacent farms were abandoned. He writes, That well thou mightest fare all a day's journey, and thou should never find a man sitting in a town, nor the land tilled. That well thou mightest fare in all a day's fare, shouldest thou never find a man in tuna sitinda, ne land tilda. This is another very important passage in the history of English. When the scribe writes that a person might fare all a day's journey, he uses the word a as an article, all a day's journey. This is the first known instance of a being used as an indefinite article in the way we use it today. So I've noted previously that this scribe is the first known scribe to use the word the as a definite article, and he used it generically just like we do today. 
And now we see this same scribe is also the first scribe to use the word a as an indefinite article. I've discussed the history of the word a before. Back in episode 48, I noted that the words a and an began as the Old English word for one. That word was on, a-n. And as I've noted before, Old English didn't really use articles like a and the. So they wouldn't say, I see a horse. They would just say, I see horse. But sometimes they did indicate the number of something. So they might say, I see five horses, or I see four horses, or I see one horse, on horse. And that's how on, meaning one, came to be used as a generic article meaning one of something. So if I say, I ate an apple, I'm literally saying, I ate one apple, because an, or on, was the original form of the word one. So, on was used to mean one, but now, for the first time, we see it shortened to just a. And that tells us that our modern article a was in use by this point in the mid-1100s, at least in the East Midlands. So, each has been shortened to our modern i, and on has been shortened to our modern a. But, of course, on, or an, has been retained in its original full form before vowels. So, an apple, an onion, an elephant, and so on. Now, the scribe has told us that towns were plundered and farms were abandoned. That meant that crops failed and food became scarce. Corn, or grain, was hard to find, and when it could be found, it was too expensive for most people to afford. And flesh, or meat, was scarce. The scribe wrote, Then was corn dear, and flesh, and cheese, and butter. For none was there in the land. Wretched men starved of hunger. Thou was corn dare, on flesh, on chesa, on botra. For none ne was o' the land. Wretchemen storven of hunger. A few lines later, the scribe writes, Never yet was there more wretchedness in this land nor never did heathen men do worse than they did. Was never yet more wretched on land, ne never heathen men worse ne deeden than he deeden. So the scribe says that the heathen men weren't as bad as the warlords who terrorized the country during this period. Most scholars agree that heathen men is a reference to the Vikings. So the scribe is saying that the warlords were worse than the Vikings. He writes, If two men, or three, came riding to a town, all the township fled from them, assuming them to be robbers. If two men, or the three, come and read into a tune, all the township of flocking for him, when then that he were in ravarous. By the way, the word ravarous meant robbers, and it later became reavers in Middle English. Even though reavers has largely disappeared from the language, the verb reeve still survives in words like bereave and bereft, meaning deprived of something or to have something taken away like a loved one. Having described the horrors of the anarchy in vivid detail, the scribe then concludes with one of his most well-known passages. He writes, They said openly that Christ slept and his saints. 
such events, and even more than we can say, we suffered for nineteen winters for our sins. He sat in Obelicha that Christ slept on his halachin, swilch an marathana we kunan sayen, we tholenden nikontina wintra for urasinus. So this particular scribe gave us a vivid description of life during the anarchy. But the scribe's hard work was nearly done. The civil war eventually came to an end, and with the end of the war and the end of the anarchy, we also got the end of the Peterborough Chronicle, the last version of the Chronicle to be maintained in English. Next time, we'll look at how the civil war ended and how law and order were reimposed across the country. And for that part of the story, we have to return across the Channel to France. Because even though Matilda couldn't defeat Stephen in England, she was having a lot more success against him in Normandy. In fact, Normandy was soon conquered by her husband, Geoffrey. And that set the stage for Matilda's son, Henry, to make a play for the English throne. These events in France had a tremendous impact on the history of England. And they also reinforced the French influence on the English language over the next couple of centuries. So next time, we'll look at those developments. Until then, thanks for listening to the History of English podcast. 